welcome everybody to the Quarantine Market Podcast, episode 12, where some academics get together and talk about our current historical moment in the isolating comfort of our pajamas. And we approach the current situation by having a discussion of particular keywords and how those concepts might be meaningful, especially in the current situation. So today's keyword is bureaucracy. And we have Paul Duguay as a guest here. And um, Alan, would you like to introduce Paul? Yes, it's my pleasure to introduce Paul today. Paul is professor um, at the School of Management and Business at Royal Holloway, although he's also a professor at the Copenhagen Business School, so he splits his time between the two universities. Within consumption, he'd be best known for his book, Doing Culture Studies, The Story of the Sony Walkman, which he co-wrote with Stuart Hall and other members of the Culture Studies group at the Open University. Also his book, Consumption and Identity at Work. But he's perhaps best known for his work in organization studies, not least in relation to bureaucracy, including his book, In Praise of Bureaucracy. So hello, Paul. Hello, thank you for having me. So Paul, to begin with, how would we begin to approach bureaucracy? Well, I like to approach it by asking students what it summons up in their heads And depending on which part of the world you're at, you either get extremely negative answers or reasonably more positive ones. So in Denmark, it tends to be the latter, whereas in the UK, at least teaching at Warwick Business School, it tended to be the former. So you'd have things like Kafka, uh, Nazis, uh, totalitarianism, inefficiency, red tape, and so on. In Denmark, it might be rights, coordination, welfare, rule of law and so on and so forth. So rather different kind of uh, meanings. And I think over the history of the term, one can see that it often just had a pejorative uh, kind of everyday meaning, which basically was ruled by officials or inefficiencies associated with large-scale organization. And it was only really um, that that begins to change when you get the work of Max Weber on bureaucracy, not really published in English, of course, until after the Second World War, but nonetheless familiar to many, uh, in which he begins to try and outline both the technical and ethical dimensions of bureaucracy in a non-pejorative, as it were, like value-neutral way. And really, it's Weber's understanding of bureaucracy, which has dominated the field of social science ever since, and which, in my humble view has never been bettered you know Weber's own work was taken hostage by others basically attached to their own kind of theoretical and other agendas but to this day its basic outlines I think have yet to be surpassed. Well what were the key basic outlines then of Weber's analysis of bureaucracies? Well he didn't actually produce a kind of formal theory of bureaucracy as a particular sort of formal organization. But I think any student doing an organization studies course of one form or another would be familiar with the kind of 12 precepts which appear from Economy and Society, Weber's massive two-volume work, which basically outline the kind of key characteristics of bureaus as he observed and analyzed them in his own time. Obviously, a hierarchical form of organization in which people occupy offices from top to bottom. Unlike what many have said, it isn't simply a command and control vehicle, but one in which there's a loop. So 
authority passes downwards, but also information passes upwards when policies are put into practice, problems arise, and so on and so forth. People have uh, an occupation office based on training, education, passing exams, and so on to indicate the requisite expertise. These offices are all linked together, as I said, in a hierarchy and interact as a kind of overall structure of offices. Work can be done because at each stage in the process, everyone knows what their role is and how it's to be done. Each member of the organization occupying an office does so with a fixed position. They can't be arbitrarily dismissed, as would be the case in a kind of master-surf relationship. Uh, And the whole thing has the appearance of being legally rational in the sense that it's governed by rules or rule-like norms, etc., etc. Those are kind of key precepts. Obviously, people also have a fixed salary and pension rights and so on. And it's a full-time job. Raymond Williams, in his keywords, notes that bureaucracy has an association with colonialism. How, How relevant is that idea of bureaucracy is inherently colonialist to contemporary analysis? Well, I wouldn't say that bureaucracy is essentially uh, colonialist or essentially anti-feminist or essentially uh, patriarchal or any of those kind of terms that one often finds in social and cultural theory. I mean, like any form of organisation, it can be put to purposes politically and otherwise, which we may regard as problematic, shall we say. Uh, But that doesn't mean to say that we have to then assume that because of that involvement and that form of organisation being prevalent in a particular event era or whatever, that we then castigate it critically and say that's the essence of it. It's like Bauman are claiming that bureaucracy was the essence of Nazism, when in fact many of the most pertinent historical studies show that the Nazi regime was far from able to operate bureaucratically, that it operated, in effect, anti-bureaucratically much of the time, not only because it removed people who were not committed members of the party or put members of the party into positions with no expertise, that the rule of law was suspended, that women, Jews, people with disabilities and others were thrown out of the bureaucracy and so on and so forth. So one needs to be very careful in trying to say that X is the essence of bureaucracy, whether that's evil, as it were, or B, if it's good, like welfare state or whatever. There isn't a particular essence to it in terms of its attachment to a political program or a social policy or a set of norms that motivate policy. It's the actual manner in which it's organized and operates that's the key thing to focus on. Now, I've noticed um, William Davies in his most recent book, Nervous States, plots a history which denotes bureaucracy as tied into a particular type of social contract uh, where the bureaucrats promise to be objective, to keep emotions and uh, personal preferences out of it. And this gives rise to a certain type of state, um, which he calls technocratic. Do you think it's useful to, to, to think of bureaucracy um, as part of, of this kind of historic sweep? Well, I I hate the use of adjectives in relationship to the state, welfare, warfare state, technocratic state, neoliberal state, and so on and so forth, because I think it's really important to distinguish between government and state. They're not the same thing. You know, governments are particular regimes with certain political norms, purposes, and so on and so forth, which obviously constantly change in the battle for party political supremacy. 
Bureaucracy itself, obviously, is a key dimension of the growth of the modern state. There's absolutely no way that that isn't the case. Indeed, one could not imagine uh, the rule of law being able to be spread across an entire nation or a geographic territory. One could not imagine the mobilization of an army to protect the population of such a geographic entity without bureaucracy. If the state is there to be able to protect its population, which in, in a sense is its, its security and protection are its absolute number one uh, rules, as it were, or motivating factors, as we are seeing at the present moment, they need, in order to be able to act with dispatch and for the entire population, presence of bureaucracy, because it is the only way that the state is able effectively to operate. So I don't, in fact, sort of like this notion of technocratic state and so on. I think one of the great things about particular um, constitutional bureaucracies in different parts of the world is that they are there, as it were, not simply because they're technocratically efficient, but because they, they enable the uh, ability of, say, parliamentary democracies to enact their laws and policies across the nation, across this geographic domain, but to do so with accountability both internally, i.e. within the Bureau itself, but also to political superiors and to Parliament. So I think the notion that somehow bureaucracies in public service, for instance, are fundamentally to be described as technocratic is wrong. I think basically they mix. You know, they've, they've never been, which is the mistake that the new public management movement, God help us, uh, kind of made, to assume it was about management and management alone and not about the absolute intertwining of politics and administration, which all constitutional bureaucracies are basically about. So to avoid the political dimension of that, and we saw this again the other day in the UK when permanent secretary at the Foreign Office, when asked about why Britain hadn't joined this EU scheme for PPE and ventilators, basically you know, said in front of a parliamentary committee that it was a political decision. You know, they offered all the advice as to why it was politically expedient to join and certainly why it would be important to join in relationship to the state's task in protecting the population from COVID-19. But that was overruled politically. But then he couldn't allow that to be admitted. He had to retract that statement, probably with his nails being plucked out within a few hours of making it. So my, my point is to just use words like technocracy, which often have a rather negative meaning is, is not to do justice in the particular context of what a state bureau is, particularly in a representative democracy. If we focus on the uh, positives and negatives, if you will, of the concept, of course, there's the history of uh, bureaucracy in the sense that it was a form of trying to mitigate the problems of arbitrary use of power. The idea yeah. is that bureaucracy uh, would ensure or at least facilitate a certain neutrality, objectivity, efficiency, and a certain equality. And then, of course, we, as you mentioned yourself, we have uh, much more striking accounts, such as pretty much all of Kafka's work, where this ideal basically turns against itself. So could you elaborate a bit on these inherent tensions of bureaucracy? Of course, in Kafka's terms, where it becomes completely perverted. I mean, it's interesting that you should mention Kafka because, of course, you know, I mean, I, I recall as a student being introduced uh, a, a reading list on studying bureaucracy, which obviously, needless to say, had Kafka on it. 
But I think one of the fascinating things about Kafka is that, of course, he was himself an utterly brilliant bureaucrat. There's a book that came out uh, in the last 10 years called Kafka's Office Writing, which is nothing but a series of um, documents formulated by Kafka himself in proceeding to deal with particular cases on behalf of individuals in his day job. And what is quite clear is that he was an utterly meticulous, brilliant bureaucrat. And I often sort of point students in the direction of that text just to give the opposite of what the normal Kafka story is. Now, clearly, you know, when one goes through this book, one sees the utter kind of tedium and constant struggle in relationship to formulating words and paragraphs to have an effect on behalf of clients and to get their rights respected and payments made. And one could imagine that that could translate an evening into the kinds of dreamlike horrors of, as it were, what we know as the Kafkaesque yeah, bureaucracy. But I think it's important to, to hold on to the fact that this man was actually, uh, for much of his uh, daytime occupation, an extraordinarily competent administrator who clearly was very professional and who, as it were, he could tick the boxes for his conduct in relationship to what Weber described as the ethos of bureaucratic conduct. That said, of course, you know, to go back to that point I made earlier about, you know, either looking at the absolute nightmare, Nazism, slavery or whatever, as the epitome of bureaucracy is as mistaken as trying to focus on, you know, an example that one regards as eminently positive, like, you know, nationalization or the building of the welfare state in the post-war period. You know, it's very easy to get into those kind of dichotomies and put your ideological preferences uh, above looking and seeing how something works and what its kind of main modus operandi are. And, and it's quite right what you say. I mean, a colleague of mine wrote yesterday trying to work through a passage in economy and society that you just couldn't quite make sense of. And it cuts to the chase of what, what you were asking, which is on the one hand, this move away from arbitrary occupation of an office at the behest of a master, which can then be passed on to your family, which you can't be removed from except by the authority or just will or interest of, of the master. So this system where people are appointed outside of their race, religion, and so on, but in terms of their competence, their education, their ability to fulfill the core tasks, and so on and so forth, which obviously seems extremely positive and does have positive effects. I mean, to make a decision about someone's claim for disability rights based on one's own personal beliefs about eugenics, for instance, would be utterly inconceivable in our kind of society. Not that, not that it can't move in that direction, but the bureaucratic mechanism, as it were, with that sense of without enthusiasm or, you know, kind of ideological interest, not doing things through kind of a certain moral fervor or over-principledness is a key facet of bureaucracy, which can be taken to be a positive if you believe in things like equality, uh, diversity, rights, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, once arbitrariness is removed and you have this capacity to occupy uh, an office in the bureaucratic hierarchy by dint of your expertise and so on and so forth, 
that can also lead perversely to a sense of a right to that office in the sense that you've got that. You can't be removed at will, but then it sometimes takes forever. You can imagine incompetence, bad behavior, being able to be kind of somehow tolerated or at least not dealt with for years and years and years. You know, there, are, there can be pros and cons to that form of organization at that level. And I think it's important to see how it's operating, why it's operating, what the kind of pros and cons are. And I guess, you know, one of the things Faber focuses on prior to Bauman taking up that mantle is a certain ambivalence. And for instance, one of Faber's big things is he criticized both the left and right in his own time for wanting bureaucracy to operate in different ways neither of which were without problems. So for the what he called the naive socialists, he said, you know, their idea that you can actually just rule by rules and that everything can be like automatic, almost like, you know, I guess, go back technocratic, without looking at the politics and without looking at the people, was an immense error. And it was, if you wanted just rule by bureau without political input, you would end up with that famous phrase of a sort of shell of future civility or the iron cage, as some people refer to it. So there is an ambivalence there. There's no question of it. But then again, no form of human organization could possibly be purely great from every single perspective. There is a long history of hatred of bureaucracy. For example, um, I'm looking at Raymond Williams' keywords again. He quotes the Daily News in 1871. It describes the ministry with all its routine of tape, wax, seals, and bureauism. So that, that long history, I think, is it, of, of hatred is interesting in itself. I wonder, would you want to say that the, the right-wing mind in particular hates bureaucracy and often does so as a sort of code? So, for example, when people talk about getting rid of red tape, what they often have in mind is things like maternity leave or health and safety regulations, which are there to protect women and protect workers. And of course, in the Brexit campaign and in populism, there's often a, a blaming of bureaucracy um, or identifying it as a sort of anti-humanism that has a stranglehold on enterprise. One doesn't need to look any further than the history of the uh, Trump administration thus far to see exactly. I mean, it was interesting that after the election of Trump in 2016, public bureaus in the state started going from being seen as extremely negative for people on the left and for Democrats, because it was assumed that with this terrible person and these terrible policies coming into place, this bureau could be the last sort of bastions of bulwark against these kind of uh, what they considered crazy policies. But for many people observing it, it was kind of another move in a long, long history, which is, you know, if you're going to have rules of the game, you have to accept certain things when you win or when you lose. And the presence of bureaucracy and the way it operates constitutionally is one of those. Now, it's certainly true that Democrats, you know, under Clinton and Carter, were no great fans of the Bureau and used actually very similar kind of populist language about how it needed to shape up and become as good as the citizenry and all the rest of it. I mean, I think it's really important to see it in its own terms and to see how it operates and to not confuse that through one's own ideological partisanship. And it is very clear that the right has always, you know, 
I think it was the anniversary in the last week of the the Oklahoma bombing when that guy blew up those public buildings in Oklahoma City, killing many public servants who was part of that uh, kind of right, really extreme right wing group that just saw the state as the thing to be destroyed because it basically curtailed liberty. Obviously, the left has a rather different history and is much more geared up to a history of creating institutions, state-based institutions to provide social welfare and rights and, and so on and so forth through bureaucratic mechanisms. But there is also a sense on the left that somehow bureaucracy is conservative. And you found that obviously in Tony Blair, if I can dare to call him left, which I know some people might not <laughs> regard as a good thing. Uh, but a kind of sense that you know he had scars on his back from trying to change uh, state bureaucracy into a more entrepreneurial, managerial, technocratic kind of enterprise. So I think you get you get this on both sides of the political spectrum. And the thing is, you know, that's what makes bureaucracy a constant target because it doesn't conform to the kind of animating desires of of ideological politics. It really does constantly become a kind of, you know, a target that everyone wants to beat around to try and somehow change into their favoured political reform vehicle. Speaking of animated desires, the consumer often seems to be the opposite of the bureaucrat. And I'm thinking now specifically of some of the Cold War ideology where there is a juxtaposition between the American consumer's freedom to choose between a very bright array of commodities versus the controlled markets of the Soviet state, where there was all sorts of restrictions on what could be bought, and a general sort of greyness to, to, to uh, the consumer culture. So is there something in that? Is, is the spirit of the consumer, uh, particularly the American consumer, uh, is it useful to juxtapose that figure with, with that of the bureaucrat? I don't know. I mean, there are possibilities for a variety of different life orders and categories of person to be enacted. Obviously, one of those is the consumer. One could say one is a bureaucrat. And they don't add up, as it were. I mean, when one is acting as a bureaucrat, for instance, in a public service institution, clearly one is acting as a particular sort of person with a set of tasks, duties and obligations linked to the office you hold. And those are very different from those you may have as a consumer in the way that we understand that term. That doesn't mean to say, of course, that bureaucrats don't work on policies that have implications for the ability of consumers to consume more or less freely. If you're talking about the structure economically, I mean, that's it's a little bit out of my area of expertise, I think. I mean, I would certainly suggest that the representations of the sort of totalitarian grey bureaucrat the Soviet system that we got very used to reading and seeing about in the West, you know, was part and parcel of the attempts to delegitimize that system. One, one could say, as one could say of contemporary China, that, that because it's a one-party state, of course, much of what happens in a bureau doesn't necessarily conform to the kind of bureau that Weber was outlining and sketching, because he wasn't talking about one in which one was acting as a bureaucrat within that context of a one-party state, what would have been called in the early modern period a confessional state. 
So I think one has to differentiate between the state forms, as it were, when one's going to look at this notion of the consumer as well, because clearly in that particular political formation, it's very different from that in the other. I'm, I'm thinking now of, for example, the Brown Report, which pushed British universities towards a market model and in particular led to the, um, the huge hiking up of students' tuition fees that part of what it wanted to do was to recreate the stu students as consumers with the idea then that that consumer ethos would modernize the university and break some of its the bureaucratic hold. So in that sense, we see the students as consumers having a particular task to do, which is to break up the sort of power complacency of the, the university. And, and, and that's what I'm, I'm thinking of. You know, that has been the story of the new public management since day one. And ever since one sees the emergence of this thing called the new public management, one sees the invocation of this category of person that's created called the consumer, who is somehow exactly going to break the rigidities and conservatism of bureaus and make them more flexible, entrepreneurial, responsive to market signals and so on and so forth. Well, ever since these new techniques and norms were introduced, obviously, there's been a lot of criticism both within the academy and without as to what its effects have been one doesn't have to you know be a genius to point to many of the negatives which are coming home to roost at this particular point in time but i think it's interesting that you know organizations study scholars who focused on universities and i'm thinking in particular of the work many many years ago of elliot jakes and wilfred brown they really felt that there was a very very strong case to say that it would be very negative to overly bureaucratize universities and equally overly problematic to marketize them. In both instances, that's entirely correct. I mean, universities were block-granted institutions. Obviously, they've now been turned into much more commercial and managerialist institutions. And the core tasks of universities as a result has changed quite substantially. Looking at the uh, outlines of the articles on the, you know, the real problems that the university business model is now facing, and which I'm certain will lead to collapses of some institutions. You have, first of all, the desperate desire to get overseas students in for the extra income. Then next to that, of course, is all the stuff that they now do commercially, whether it's renting out space for conferences, weddings, you know partnerships with industry and so on and so forth to the point where obviously they absolutely depend on marketing and getting bums on seats competing with each other often quite viciously and what that does of course is to erode what we consider to be you know the academic vocation and indeed the capacity to give what we consider to be an education to our students often as you say reimagined and reversioned as consumers and I think that system is now, given the current situation, pretty much on the brink of collapse and, I would say, good riddance. Paul, you mentioned that the concept of bureaucracy becomes easily a target for various political interests. And I, I just wonder, because, of course, the ideal of bureaucracy would again be sort of objectivity and neutrality, which, of course, political interests are not in the business of creating in the first place. I was wondering, would it be also accurate to say that the idea of bureaucracy is an easy scapegoat also because of its supposed neutrality and that utopian idea actually never works? 
So it's almost like the idea of science being completely objective, but actually never manifests as such. So there is this obvious suspicion that comes with the territory of the idea of bureaucracy as well. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's interesting that there's this assumption of some ideal universal thing called neutrality, which bureaucracies are assumed to be approximating to and can easily be castigated for their failure to realise. But it's interesting that if one then gets rid of the ideal, much like, you know, it may be impossible for anyone to run 100 metres in one second. Nonetheless, people continue to train as if that was an ideal, though it's not one that anyone assumes will be realised. It's the same with bureaucracy. If you get rid of what I would call even the attempt, I mean, at least public bureaus attempt to deal with cases in a way which I would call is casuistic in the sense that it's case-based. Most of the time, of course, that's rule-based in the sense that you have these rules, you interpret them in relationship to cases and make a decision based on that. But often, notions of uh, justice and equity, the rules themselves cannot necessarily provide that. One has to look at various different dimensions of a case that don't conform to the rules or the principles and make a decision based on on that, and I think it's in that sense that one has to see public bureaus not as you know neutral in some kind of automatic sense. People have to be trained, as it were, to comport themselves in a way that means they don't necessarily bring their own ideological, moral, and other dimensions to bear in a case where they're inappropriate. And I remember working in Australia and doing work with um, various people at the Institute of Public Administration Australia, and a case came up where a senior civil servant had been uh, charged with a policy which said that all student union bars needed to have contraceptive machines in them. And over time, it never happened. And eventually, an investigation took place. And it became clear that this senior civil servant had effectively kept kicking it very creatively into the long grass. And it became apparent that the reason for this was not because there were more pressing things that needed to be done and it was less of a priority, but because he was a very, very traditional Catholic who didn't believe in contraception. So if one gets individuals' moral kind of perspectives, you know, interfering with the duties of their office, nothing, as it were, can get done. And in fact, you know, if that was a universal or a, or, or a prevalent perspective amongst civil servants, of course, policies would never be enacted and the whole sort of apparatus of state would fall apart. So I think it's, it's best to focus on the local circumstantial and specific nature of what you mean by neutrality. And it's not absolute neutrality. It is neutrality as measured against its alternatives. So, of course, many civil servants enter public service because they want to do good for the public interest. But that doesn't mean that they can take their own enthusiasms as to what they think that is, you know, their own view of what good governance is and just translate it into practice. They have to do it within the confines of the duties and obligations of the office they happen to occupy. If they can't do that, if it's against their moral principles that they have that they find abhorrent, of course, they have the right to resign or to ask to be transferred somewhere else. But the point is, without that more nuanced understanding of neutrality, many of the things that we take for granted in our social policy lives and in relationship to decisions of government about certain things to do with us, whether it's tax or benefits or whatever, just wouldn't exist. 
if I could further intensify the idea of bureaucracy, again, a little bit maybe Kafkaesque, but also perhaps from a Foucauldian perspective of the panopticon. Because you said, I think, uh, quite nicely that it's always a mistake to think about these ideas as uh, dichotomous. But bureaucracy is evil or good, or the lack of bureaucracy is evil or good. But then, apart from this dichotomy, I'm, looking, I'm interested in looking at the internal machinations of the idea of following rules, uh, which is when you intensify that to a certain point, more maybe in this uh, realm of fiction, you get to the moment where everything is perfectly rational, perfectly neutral, perfectly objective, and the outcome is then again madness. So you have this internal compulsion where everything becomes rationalized to a point of absurdity, which is, of course, what Kafka is famous for. So. Outside these dichotomies, what do you see the potentials of this internalization of order? And uh, is, there, is there a sort of point where you can, you can kind of really see the dangers of that too? I mean, looking at what Weber says, for instance, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, what he called armchair literatures and um, certain forms of naive socialism, he saw this desire for a kind of automatic, as it were, rule following or governance by rules and rational bureaucracy as somehow being the purveyor of this utopian world in which everyone would have everything they needed according to need and all the rest of it. But he saw that as very problematic because the most dysfunctional, I mean, if you counterpose, for instance, the histories of Nazism, which show exactly how dysfunctional it was by not being bureaucratic, contra Bauman's argument, you can also show earlier in the in the history of German administration, the absence of a political leadership leads to something called government by officials. And officials are, of course, mostly in those positions because they aren't really political in the professional political sense. And for Weber, the absence of that was a real problem. And he said everything else is a sideshow. So I think, you know, if you have government by officials, of course, certain things can happen, but it will get into that kind of shell of future civility when there are no other norms going except the operation of the system itself. So it's absolutely crucial that this link between politics and administration is maintained, certainly in public bureau. And I would say, you know, you could look at instances, particularly around the global financial crisis in Lehman's, for instance, where the other extreme takes place, where you have private policies being developed by stealth, by senior management and going outside of the hierarchy and of the uh, offices that should be making adjudications on decisions and working out their, their feasibility. So you have, you know, it, it has to be context-based, casuistical understanding of the limits and the positivities and negativities of a particular form of organisation in relationship to how it operates. And I think you know, speaking personally as well as professionally, of course, I would prefer to live under a well-functioning bureau uh, in a state that was actually operating as a state and had capacity to deal with issues that, that, that come up out of nowhere, such as the current one. And I think, um, you know, one just has to be very careful about how one approaches bureaucracy without being overly celebratory as it were, as the greatest organizational thing since sliced bread, or as the absolute apogee of freedom and uh, autonomy as, as, as an evil that kind of constantly undermines humans' capacity to self-govern and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, Kafka's fiction 
is a beautiful illustration of government by official. And I think, you know, that's what you would hold on to. But on the other hand, as I mentioned earlier, what's really interesting is that Kafka himself, as a bureaucrat, tried to live up to that much more circumstantial, hardworking, task-based thing of actually delivering the actual outcomes for citizens, clients, and so on and so forth, through the very practices of, of approximating to more or less Weber's ideal bureaucrat. So it, it's, it can be a morass. But the thing is, the attempt uh, to, to actually operate with a certain sense of neutrality, and I say, again, I want to stress not absolute, whatever that may mean, but a very kind of context-based uh, and politically infused understanding, political administration is, is I think, is a positive. I wonder, Paul, do you take a view on David Graeber's recent book on the rise of bullshit jobs, where he claims that there's been this extraordinary proliferation of pointless work, uh, that that has no real contribution to society whatsoever, that leaves people who have to do it soul-destroyed, but also linked to that, this strange inverse relationship of value, that namely the more direct value that's produced by certain jobs, the less the salary is, um, and, and vice versa. Do you think that Graeber is identifying something uh, that exists in society? Well, I think that, you know, Graeber is an anarchist and a polemicist. And I think the two books that, you know, kind of touch on this topic of bureaucracy most are particularly that one and the earlier one on bureaucracy, the name of which I'm afraid I've, I've forgotten. But he would be more associated in my mind with the sort of more polemical understanding of bureaucracy that sort of doesn't look at it in value-neutral terms, but already has a sort of ideological uh, agenda in relationship to it. That's further elaborated in the bullshit jobs thing. But I think, you know, to look at what he says positively is to look at things that have been said um, either in the same way or in a more nuanced way in relationship to actual empirics since the development of new public management. So... I know you, um, Alan, in fact, probably both of you, got a very strong critical take on the way the modern university has developed. And that, I think, would be a place where you could apply, you know, some of what Graver says. And it's not because people are doing soul-destroying jobs that are absolutely pointless, but that actually once you take an organization's purpose in a certain direction, you're bound to get certain kinds of jobs coming to the fore. So if you need to market your university to compete viciously and voraciously with other universities, to start claiming things about your accommodation, your infrastructure, developing ridiculous slogans like be the difference or challenge your lighthouse identities, bringing the 60s back to the university. I mean, it seems utterly absurd from the perspective of what one might take to be the purposes of a university. In Graeber's words, you know, there are a lot of what we would consider to be bullshit jobs in the university, but not because they are themselves pointless and tedious from the perspective of some universal perspective, but simply because they are contributing to taking the university further and further away from its core tasks and purpose towards some other, we know, you know, entrepreneurial, commercial university, market-based university, whose business model when faced with a change in circumstance, is unable to deal with it. And basically, the whole farrago is shown in stark relief. But I mean, I think, you know, you can apply that to a number of other different domains. But I guess where I sort of, I, I, I try not to take that polemical perspective or to kind of 
gear it up into a politically and ideologically dramatic form, whilst maintaining that the core or some of the key elements of what are being discussed and argued are, in fact, pretty accurate. So if we uh, focus a little bit on the current global situation of the global pandemic of COVID-19, it's obviously showed us there is a crisis of organizing, ongoing global organizing, where depending a little bit on the particular government or the form of government in nations is shown either to break up uh, nations into private fiefdoms or then there may be some more social democratic approaches, for example, where I live in, in the Nordics. Well, how would you relate bureaucracy or the concept of bureaucratic thinking into the kind of global event of organizing that is relatively, I would say, haphazardly showing its various forms of problems right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't divorce it from politics. That's the definite. And therefore, you are going to see all sorts of things going on in different uh, state policy contexts, uh, which are partly part and parcel of, you know, both the political history and the political present ideologically and so on. So I don't think one could entirely divorce the government's reaction here in the UK both from the libertarian and anti-statist beliefs uh, over many years of many members of the European Research Group, for instance, the, the very hard Brexit group within the Conservative Party. I think the austerity policies that many policies, governments have followed since the global financial crisis has led to a hollowing out of state capacity. And that is very evident in the states. And that, of course, has, has continued very markedly under the Trump administration. But it's also been the case clearly in the UK, less so, obviously, in the Nordic uh, model. Uh, no question of that. And I think the ways in which Denmark, um, Norway and others have obviously followed a particular path Sweden, obviously, and I guess in Finland, rather different. But nonetheless, within a more, I would, it seems to me, at least from the outset, a more secure, compromising kind of corporatist governance, as opposed to that of, of the US and, and the UK. When that comes down to modes of organizing, I mean, I think it's quite clear that in order to be able to act with dispatch and across, again, a large geographic area, one again sees, and I think this is reflected in many of these articles that have appeared in magazines, on websites and so on about, wow, bureaucracy is back. Uh, we need this form of organization in order to be able to deal with this crisis. That's not the only thing, of course, both in the US and the States themselves, of course. One could point to the 9-11 the incident, which really showed the benefits of the bureaucratic form of governance in that state. I, I'm not an expert on that, so I can't kind of comment on what's going on at the present moment. But I think one I would say is that there has been a shift back to see the positivities of large-scale formal organization of a bureaucratic kind in dealing with national emergencies. But some of the problems with the ability to enact that are to do both with the ideological persuasions of those who happen to be governing Uh, and you could point to disaster areas unfolding like Brazil. Um, but I think on the other hand, it also poses some problems to other forms of organizing, which have been instilled in a way because they were seen to overcome what were seen to be the sclerotic or inefficient aspects of bureaucracy. And one of those, of course, would be just-in-time supply chains. And as states retract 
to protect their populations, shut down borders, are desperate to get things. You know, you begin to see the fragility of that particular system in the light of this pandemic crisis and some of the costs of running that kind of system. And I think both John Gray, Fukuyama and others, not always people that one would naturally sort of see as bedfellows, pointing to you know the re-emergence of the state and state capacities as absolutely fundamental, the importance of a Hobbesian state, the importance of a well-functioning state bureaucracy, the problems of taking globalization so far that an incident like this can cause you know almost complete social upheaval and potential state collapse uh, have been kind of quite salutary. Now how it's all going to pan out over time again is very difficult to say. There are still some utopians or optimists who believe that we'll get back to what they consider to be normal. I doubt whether that's the case. And again, I doubt whether, you know, some people, perhaps ourselves included, would necessarily want that to be the case. But there's no doubt that uh, certain forms of organising, you know, commercially have proven to be, you know, in the language of the moment, very non-resilient and not as uh, flexible in being able to meet crisis as people would perhaps have anticipated and maybe only when a certain sort of regime logic which i guess people might call neoliberal has infused so many economies and polities and during the period when it wasn't faced with utter collapse or such a, a crisis seems to be you know working well some people would say but of course the costs of that are, are increasingly visible and that system i think will be fundamentally ordered and it may well be that you'll find a greater provenance of bureaucracy within the commercial and private sectors than you would have perhaps imagined prior to this i don't know but i will end there one last question for me and it's a little bit of a strange one but when i'm thinking of the classic representations of the alienated bureaucrat i'm thinking for example of kafka's metamorphosis or uh, barnaby the scrivener um, and this this persists right through these kind of drab offices, which are very dull. And there's a certain kind of affective tone in these offices that the man in the grey flannel suit kind of captures that 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 spirit. Monty Python sketches. And now we're we're in a period where people are working from home. I wonder is there an affective shift in the idea of the administrator or bureaucrat who works at home as opposed to the bureaucrat, which 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 might allow us to reimagine what it is to be a bureaucrat for every negative representation that one can find in literature one can also find and often in surprising places uh, rather different and perhaps more realistic interpretations so for instance i think there's a trilogy of novels by frank morehouse an australian author who won the prime premier australian literary prize for the first of those and that it follows the journey of a young woman who joins the League of Nations in the interwar period with high ideals of social justice, very anti-bureaucratic, wanting to get things done, but gradually begins to see the benefits of a bureaucratic form of organising through a set of events and incidents that are charted in those novels. Funnily enough, um, oh, goodness me, I've just forgotten his name now. Um, David Foster Wallace is, is an exemplary. I mean, I, when... Wallace made his name, you know, rather than hang on and move to New York and become part of a literary circle. He disappeared into middle America and took accountancy classes. 
and the pale king's invocation of bureaucratic officialdom is extraordinarily positive in the sense that these unsung people who others from the literary ferment would call perhaps deracinated were there doing a job barely registered you know and yet they were able to provide things in so doing that allowed social life to continue and move along its paths as it were and allow people to have a certain degree of freedom and so on in their private lives that otherwise would be missing so there are sort of counter movements in in in, in fiction that are and, and i think the whole cp snow uh, friends and brothers series for instance would also conform to that in relationship to what's going on now, uh, from my very limited um, conversations with university administrators, obviously people I would have some contact with, I think the homeworking bureaucrat is finding, as all of us are, the pressures of suddenly have to having to move to a new system, in fact, make that system work, are pretty stressful, uh, that there is an exhaustion to the kinds of things that we're doing on MS Teams and Zoom and so on, which is difficult to deal with, particularly when you can't always get that body language and that sense of what, you know, how pe- how the mood is is developing in a meeting and so on. But I also think missing that sense of, of, of actually being in an office where one can quickly go and see someone where the whole kind of human infrastructure of, of the system is, is much more present, visible, and obvious. So I don't know how to say it any any further than that. I mean, I was glad yesterday to see that the University of Durham, with its kind of utopian and anti-academic plans to shift everything online and to not negotiate or even discuss it with academics and other staff, has now been completely changed. I'm wondering whether these kind of developments along with perhaps a contraction in the sector, might take us back more to the sort of vision or ideal of a university that appears to have disappeared over the horizon quite substantially in the course of the last few years. Thank you very much, Paul. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, let me know how it goes.